This morning is World Communion Sunday, and so the highlight of our worship will be the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But before we get there, I want us to experience a story that is key for understanding God's covenant love for God's people. We're focusing on covenant this fall. Covenant is a sacred commitment to relationship, initiated by God for the sake of the other, and it shapes our identity and our conduct. In a covenant, belonging shapes behavior. And we have to get those in the right order, otherwise we start thinking in terms of contracts. We don't earn covenant. Covenant already exists because God initiates it and we live in it and through it and because of it. So far we've remembered God's covenant with Noah after the flood, God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah that they will be blessed in order to be a blessing and that all the world will be blessed through them. And last week we saw how God's covenant love, God's promise to be with us always, played out in the life of Joseph when he was sold into slavery in Egypt. So here's what's happened between last week and this week. Joseph became powerful and saved Egypt from a famine, which led to his whole family moving to Egypt and settling there, and their descendants lived there for generations. And the book of Exodus starts by telling us that hundreds of years later, there was a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. He had forgotten the story of his country's past. And at that time then, the Egyptians began to feel threatened by these immigrants, and so they enslaved them. God inspired a man named Moses to stand up to the Egyptian Pharaoh and persuade him to let the people go. And after 10 devastating plagues, Pharaoh relented and the people left Egypt and headed into the wilderness. We're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 14, verse 5. If you're using one of the Bibles in our pews, it's page 108. If you don't already own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home with you. Again, it's Exodus chapter 14. We're starting in verse 5. In the What? It's page 52? Okay. All right. Well, it's Exodus 14, and if you um, need a little help finding it, there's a table of contents at the beginning. <laughs> so let's listen in this story for the word and the wisdom of God. I'm just going to read it to you instead of putting it up there. I want you to hear it and experience it. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... The minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed towards the people. And we said, and they said, what have we done letting Israel leave our service? So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. 600 elite chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. This is when an empire mobilizes their military to protect their economic interests. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. I'm going to skip to verse 10. 
As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, let us alone, so that we can serve the Egyptians? They're rewriting history at this point. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Better live slaves than dead free people, is what they say. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his chariot drivers. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his chariot drivers." The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. And one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. From strength to strength, may we be strengthened. Thanks be to God. So hundreds of years ago, God made a covenant with the ancestors of this group of people. And here in this moment, God demonstrates that covenant through rescue and victory, which are two of the common meanings for the word salvation. This is the decisive event that forms the identity of the ancient Hebrews as God's people, and it's the result of covenant. They are who they are because they have a covenant with God. This covenant action by God, this moment of salvation, brings the people together in a way that they weren't really before. This collective experience of being rescued by God shapes them, all of them together. They've experienced something together and it makes them different. It gives them a relationship with one another, a connection. Have you experienced this in your life? You experience something with someone and your relationship with them is different going forward. Yeah. They have a common story which connects them to God and to each other. And the key identity of God in the Old Testament is that this is the God who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, when God speaks to the people and identifies God's self, 
God most often says, I am the God of your ancestors, the God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. God hears the cries of the oppressed and acts decisively on their behalf. The people cry out, and God responds with magnificent deliverance. Glory! And yet many of us struggle with this story. One of the effects of living in an individualistic society is that we interpret everything from the standpoint of the individual. We want this story to mean that God is going to part the thing that feels like a Red Sea to me individually. But as my mentor, the Reverend Dr. Marty Bomber, likes to remind me, the gospel is always personal, but never individual. The gospel is always personal, but never individual. And while I know that I have experienced things that feel like miracles to me, that's not what this story is about. This is not a story about God rescuing one person. It is a bold assertion that God does not allow oppression and injustice to get the last word. Amen. Thank you. The problem with interpreting this particular story individually is that we all have times when we have prayed and didn't get the outcome we asked for, and so we feel like God didn't show up. I have had times in my own life where I felt like God didn't show up. I had no doubt that God could. I just didn't know if God would. And I was afraid that my faith could not survive asking for something important and not getting it, and so I didn't ask for it in the first place. Maybe I'm the only one that does this. I was so afraid of being disappointed that I just kept hedging my bets. I have to tell you, friends, that I'm getting tired of hedging my bets. Because in a world where our national and international divisions are growing ever deeper and more ominous, where people are choosing between leaving their home or fighting in a war that just is plain wrong, where the color of your skin and the amount of money in your bank account are still the strongest predictors of whether you'll die from COVID, where almost every woman I know, myself included, has experienced an assault on her personhood and her dignity. Where people can work full-time jobs and not afford to live. Where human beings are being bussed back and forth across the country as expendable pawns in a political chess game. Where we continue to devise new weapons to destroy one another while simultaneously destroying ourselves by destroying our planet. In this world, friends, we have some red seas in need of parting, and our sacred text boldly proclaims that our God does that. We tell this story exactly the way it's written, without worrying about proving it archaeologically, because taking this story into ourselves forms us into the kind of people who are hard to intimidate. This story makes us brave and gives us hope and keeps us moving when we feel like we have nowhere to go. Amen. 
In this story, the people have no good option. They are facing impassable chaos, symbolized by the sea, with violence and oppression coming up right behind them. They are literally caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. There is nothing for them to do here. They can't swim, and they can't fight. And so they cry out to God, and Moses tells them, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. And he's almost right, but not quite. They shouldn't be afraid. God is going to deliver them. But here's the problem. Moses also told them to keep still. And God responds with, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to get moving. Moses tells them to stay put. God tells them to go forward. They don't need to be afraid. God is going to deliver them. But not while they're sitting still. When we are facing the chaotic unknown, we may just hear God tell us to go forward straight into it. Because what is impossible for humans is possible with God. Friends, we cannot keep still. And we cannot keep quiet. Imagine if Mary Magdalene had kept quiet. Imagine if Peter and Paul and James had kept still. Imagine if Saints Felicity and Perpetua and the rest of the early martyrs had kept quiet. Imagine if Martin Luther had kept quiet. Imagine if Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan Anthony and Lucy Stone had kept still. Imagine if Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman had kept still. Imagine if Dorothy Day had kept still. Imagine if Dr. King kept still. Imagine if Dietrich Bonhoeffer kept still. Imagine if Archbishop Oscar Romero had kept still. Imagine if Mother Teresa had kept still. Now I know that you are saying, but Pastor Beth, I am not Mary Magdalene or Frederick Douglass or Dr. King or Mother Teresa, to which I say, not yet. <laughs> And we never will be if we keep still. The only way to become who God is calling us to be, who we long to be, who the world needs us to be, is by moving forward. There is a wonderful ancient Jewish story about this Red Sea moment. It's not in the Bible. It's in another text called the Midrash. The ancient rabbis tell this story. It's about a young man named Nashon who was the first to step into the waters of the Red Sea. <sighs> Somebody had to be first. He waded it up to his ankles, and the waters didn't move. He went in up to his knees, up to his waist, up to his neck, and the waters didn't move. And as he took the step that would have put his head under the water, the sea began to move. The message of this story is that our infinitely creative God of love is absolutely committed to liberating captives and may just have a solution that we would never have expected and could never have conjured through our own efforts, and we are called to move forward even when we can't see that solution yet.
We tell this story exactly the way it is written because we need it. Because it shapes us. Our stories shape us as individuals and as communities. And Lord knows this world needs disciples of Jesus who are hard to intimidate. We tell this story exactly the way it is written because we desperately need to be shaped by this story. With God's help, may we choose day by day to move forward with the God who parts Red Seas. Amen? Amen. It is so appropriate that we move to the Lord's table this morning. Because when the Red Sea parting God, the God who will not let injustice continue forever, when that God comes to us in person, that God looks like Jesus. As unexpected now as he was then. Surely a God who routes armies and rescues whole communities of people would come in power and put a decisive end to oppression. But no. Instead, God comes as one of the oppressed, the uneducated, the underemployed. God comes as one of the disinherited. Because the true revolution, friends, always starts from below. So God shows us what it looks like to love our enemies when we're weaker than they are. And God shows us what it looks like to forgive when it's pretty certain we're going to get taken advantage of again. And God shows us what it looks like to share when we don't feel that we have enough. And God shows us what it looks like not to fight fire with fire, but to be actively nonviolent. God shows us what it looks like when greed and violence and religious hypocrisy do their worst to our very bodies and still don't get the last word. That is who Jesus is. That is what we celebrate as we gather around the table of Christ. And on this World Communion Sunday, as Christians of all skin tones worship God in all languages, we remember that this table is big enough to set a feast for the whole world. Because, beloved, this is the joyful feast of the people of God, where people of all ages, races, and sexes, people in every type of body, come from the north, south, east, and west, and gather at this table with the risen Christ, who is the host at all 